Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello, welcome, everybody. Hi. Hello there. Thank you so much. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we get into the episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Dr. Kavita Desai. Had a great time talking to her, and I got to learn so much about her research. If you haven't had a chance to listen to her interview, I suggest you do so after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 102. We have an incredibly special guest today. Joining me is Mr. Jonathan Blake. Jonathan is a truly remarkable man, as he's one of the oldest people on the planet who was diagnosed with HIV in the beginning days of the AIDS epidemic and has defied medical odds to reach old age. As an icon in the gay community, Jonathan spends his days advocating and educating young people in the importance of practicing safe sex and knowing your HIV status. So we discuss his early days discovering his sexuality, how he caught the virus and how he dealt with it, how he and his lifelong partner, Nigel, joined the legendary Gays and Lesbians Support the Minors, which was a grassroots organization dedicated to supporting striking minors in Wales in the early 80s. Plus, we talk about the 2014 film Pride, which chronicled the LGSM movement and in which he was played by the amazing actor Dominic West. And you know what? So much more. So we've got a lot to discuss. Let's get Jonathan out of here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet and welcome to the Derek Duval Show. Calling in from London, England, Mr. Jonathan Blake. Jonathan, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather in the UK today? The, the weather actually is beautiful today. The sun nice. is shining. I have not swum this morning. I thought, no, I'll take uh, a day, uh, a day's break. Because I normally cold water swim. Oh wow! Do you yeah. do that lo- local, or you just you go to the yeah, beach? Yeah, no, or... local, local. We have mm. a, a a lido, which is mm. literally at the top of my road, in a very beautiful park, Brockwell Park, mm-hmm. and um, I swim all year round. So nice. go through That's the winter. Nice. So I start my interviews with the same question as all others, and that's how has it been for you personally to navigate the COVID nineteen pandemic so far? Oh, you know. In some ways, I think because of living with HIV, so I've lived through one pandemic. 
Right. Um, I think that that uh, that helped. Also, you know, I had a partner. Sadly, Nigel died at the the start of the year, but during the sort of uh, the start of the pandemic, you know, we were together, and so I think that 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 makes a difference when you've got and other people that that does help because you're not on your own can't imagine what it can have been like for for people if they were living on their own and then became even more isolated because you can't go out and meet people and and what have you so that that always makes things much easier so every journey has a beginning and where are you originally from I'm originally from Birmingham. So I read you were born in 1949, which was four years after the end of the Second World War. What yeah. was Birmingham like in those years? It was very, very gray. Um, I remember it as, as being sort of bleak. We used to get a lot of smogs because it was, a, it was an industrial sort of area, but it was, it was dull, it was gray. And you know, from a very early age, I knew that I was other, though so I knew that sort of my sexuality was not in a way acceptable. And it's very strange that, that even as a child, one was picking up on these vibes. So that made it quite, uh, quite difficult. Well, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be, but um, we were all sent away even though we lived in Birmingham, we were sent away to boarding school in Birmingham. I mean, it's, oh. it's, it, it strikes me as being completely crazy. But actually, I quite enjoyed it because I wasn't happy at home. And I think I wasn't happy at home because I was holding on to this awful secret. What I was very fortunate was that there was a most wonderful art teacher there. And the art teacher took my mother aside and she said, you know, Jonathan may not be completely academic. I had a younger brother who was 15 months younger than me, but he was always in the A stream when I was in the C stream, but in the A stream of the same year. So they had moved him up a year, <laughs> which actually didn't worry me because like, you know, education wasn't that important in terms of, of my head. But anyway, Eileen Fisher took my mother aside and said, Jonathan is creative and you need to nurture his creativity. My, love, my mother loved the theatre. My father, if he went to the theatre, he would just fall asleep through it. <laughs> so my mother used to come and collect me from school um, and would take me to the Stratford Memorial Theatre. So the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, where, where now the Royal Shakespeare Company was, but it was the Stratford Memorial Theatre. And she would take me to the theatre. We would go to matinees on a Saturday. She'd take me out of school. And I remember the very first play that I saw was Midsummer Night's Dream. And there was this wall of Athens. I mean, this, this solid wall. And from nowhere, this wood appeared. I mean, it was absolutely magical. And my breath was taken away. And I just thought, wow, this is... This is something else. And then two weeks later, we went to see King Lear. And Charles Lawton was playing King Lear. Charles Lawton had played Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. 
but he was playing Lear. And I was totally, totally blown away from, by that. And I turned to my mother and I said, I'm going to be an actor when I grow up. And my mother said, well, that's wonderful. Well, I hope not like John Gilgood. And I hadn't a clue what she meant, not a clue. And it wasn't till much later that I discovered that John Gilgood, of course, had been um, found by the police, uh, was arrested for, for being in a, in a public toilet. Uh, and there was a huge hoo-ha. And it was only much later that I thought, was my mother trying to tell me something that she knew about my sexuality? I mean, who knows? But it was something that, that just, you know, that stayed with me. I hadn't a clue what she was talking about at the time. And I thought John Gilgood was, was this amazing actor. So, so, you know, that was that. And from there on, that's really all that I ever wanted to do. And so I went through school and went to senior school. And at senior school, it was actually my elder brother who he and I used to fight like cat and dogs because I was the interloper. Of course, I was the middle child. So I had come along and I had taken all the love that, that he had originally got. So he and I sort of were at, at loggerheads most of the time. But one of the things that he had done was that he went to the, the people who organized the school plays where we were at school. And he said to them, my younger brother wants to be an actor. Would you please take him on? So I started doing, uh, doing plays there. And, and that was great. And kind of that's what kind of I filled my time doing that and also listening to, to classical music. Nice. So the story is you were one of the very first people to be diagnosed with a mysterious at that time and deadly virus in the early days of what would be the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. What do you remember from the circumstances of how you got the disease to how it came to be that you went to a doctor to get some form of, unfortunately, terminal diagnosis at that well, time? Basically, what I know about how I presented, I'd been out of work um, for a, as an actor for a while. I'd just done a big film and was thinking this is going to completely sort of, you know, make my name. Everything will change. Uh, it was a film called From a Far Country, and it was about the life of, of John Paul II, uh, Carol Wojtyla. Anyway, uh, nothing happened, and I was back out of work. And when I was out of work, I was very fortunate that I used to work as a waiter in a restaurant called Joe Allen. Joe Allen was a, a, a big theatre restaurant in New York, and then it moved to Montreal and Paris and London, and there was a branch in London. So whenever I was out of work, I could go and work there. And I was working there and I began to find that, that every single lymph node in my body was erupting. And it reached the point that I could no longer sort of work. I was basically put on sick pay. What was really fortunate was that because I had been out of work for over 12 months, so I'd been working at Joe Allen's, um, I was given sick pay and holiday pay, which if I'd been an actor, I would have got nothing. So, you know, there was a great deal of, of good luck there. And I remember going to make an appointment to see my 
local doctor, my GP. Um, and I was living in the East End. And I remember walking into her surgery and she got up and she said, shake my hand. And as I shook her hand, she felt in the crook of my arm where my lymph node was and it was up and it was painful and she pressed and I went, ow, that's painful. What have you done that for? She said, that's the sailor's handshake. Whenever the sailors went into port, they would shake the women or the men's hands. And if that lymph node was up, it was a sign of syphilis, syphilis. and they wouldn't go with them. So she said to me, have you recently had a syphilis test? And I said, I haven't, I've had syphilis, but no, I haven't. So she said, I suggest that you go to the special clinic uh, and, uh, and get it checked out. So I did, and I used to go to somewhere called James Pringle House, which was part of the Middlesex Hospital. And I presented myself there and they were all over me. And they took me in and they said, we want to do a biopsy and they put me into a, a side ward. And I remember being in this side ward and there was one other person that was in there and they were really, really ill. I mean, they were on basically their deathbed, as, you know, right. it was awful. And I suddenly realized that I knew this person, that I had been out on tour in 1976 in Norwich and I had met this person. And he's lying there, you know, almost dead. And I had the biopsy and they kept me there for two days till they got the result. And they came back and they told me, um, you have a virus which is causing persistent lymphadenopathy. There is no cure and it's a terminal diagnosis and you can go home. And I was 33 and my life was over before it had even started. And that was that. What they did say was, of course, when the time comes, there will be palliative care. I mean, thank heavens that we have a national health service, but that was that. I can't I, imagine how devastated that must've been for you. It was it was utterly devastating. I I kind of I left in this kind of sort of fog. I just nothing made sense. And I went back to my flat in the East End. And I just closed the door. And I didn't get in touch with people. And of course, one has to remember that there were no computers, there were no mobile phones, there were landlines or there were letters. So that's how you communicated with uh, with people. So it's telephone or or you wrote. So everything is is very slow. You're not getting a lot of of information. And in the December of that year, I decided because I had lived, so I'd lived in New York in uh, in well, I'd first been to New York in 1972, but I'd lived in New York for 10 months in 1974. I'd gone over there because these friends of mine who work in the garment center said, come over, you know, we'll get you a, a green card. There'll be no problem. And so I did. 
I'd been to New York in 72, had the most amazing time um, and thought, yeah, they can do it. That's fine. They got friends in Washington. But what happened in 1973? What a yeah. Yeah. So nobody in Washington was doing anything. Um, my friends knew Kissinger's sister. So, you know, it should have been a shoe in, but nobody was touching it. And uh, so they said, well, go and see a lawyer. So I went to see a lawyer. This lawyer said to me, well, who are you? I've just tried to get Peter Firth, who'd just been starring in Equus on Broadway, his green card. I can't get him a green card. You? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I worked restaurants. I had an amazing time. I lived in the Ansonia building. The Ansonia building, the basement of that, had the Continental Baths where Bette Midler had, uh, had started. Um, and I had been in 1972 when I'd sort of gone there, these friends of mine that I stayed with um, had taken me to see Bette Midler's first show at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> and she was just extraordinary. I remember sort of going to, to Carnegie Hall to see her. I went to the opening night of Greece on Broadway. I mean, it was just, my head was turned around New York. But it was, well, I had an amazing time. I had a fantastic time, but, you know, I realized that I still wanted to work as an actor. And so there was nothing that I could do. So I came back to, uh, to London to, to continue my sort of um, career from there. How I received the virus, I have a very, very dear friend um, who was from San Francisco. She got married in San Francisco in February, 1981. And she wanted all her friends from London to come over. And, you know, it was a big Jewish um, wedding. And in Jewish weddings, you have ushers as opposed to bridesmaids. And so, well, you probably have bridesmaids as well, but ushers are the big thing. So she had all her, her London friends um, over to, uh, to be ushers. And I had a, a very good friend who I had, used to share a flat with who had moved from London to San Francisco. So I stayed with him, George Hodgson. So I stayed with him and had an, an amazing time, you know, and of course I hit the bathhouses. I've always loved bathhouses, you know, and so I hit the bathhouses. And, you know, when I got back, when I worked it out finally, and I didn't work it out till many years actually afterwards, but, you know, I was there in February 81 and I was diagnosed in October 1982. And that's like 15 months. And that's the kind of period that uh, that this virus sort of um, takes to uh, to serio convert. Which is unlike COVID, which is so much. Worse. Right. So in 82, the medical community gives the virus a name, which is of acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Yeah. What were you feeling when the virus finally had a name? Like it, had, it finally had something you can actually officially call it. Well, I mean, it, I mean, in a way it didn't, it kept changing mm -hmm. because at one point it was called sort of um, HTLV3. So human lymphadenopathy virus three and the, uh, the French called it LAV. And eventually they finally hit on 
um, HIV, sort of uh, human immunodeficiency virus. I don't know that it necessarily meant much because they were all essentially terminal diagnoses. I mean, that was the thing that was was so wretched. It was the fact that that you are told, and I was 33. I mean, a lot of the kids that got it were much younger, you know, so they hadn't even, I mean, I had at least sort of had what sort of 10 years of working as an actor and something, you know, but there were sort of kids that were sort of getting it at 22 and dead by the time they're 23. So, you know, it was awful. Yeah. They were really, really sort of bleak, bleak, dark years. But as I say, you know, we in the United Kingdom were so fortunate that we had a national health service where when you needed uh, medication, you received the medication, you didn't have to pay for the medication. Right. You know, and so that in a way, I think sort of has, has made sort of, well, I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why, you know, whether it was that my parents just gave me an extraordinary great set of genes, you know, who knows? Yeah. My my kind of uh, my HIV consultant kind of laughs when I tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a way, I mean, you are basically an anomaly, you know, in in the community with the HIV community. I mean, like you said, have you ever hypothesized why it could be? I mean, like you, like you said, good genetics. Was there anything you were doing differently than everyone else was doing, or? Well, I think that that one of the things that that I have always done is that I go to steam baths. No, not just, you know, your, your gay steam baths, right. but proper hammams. Um, and I've been doing that since I first came to London. And I started in about 1969. And, you know, go to steam baths where people sort of, you do something called schmeising. You know, it's a, it's a good Yiddish word. And you basically have this brush that is made of raffia and you sort of wave it over a, a body and it, the, the, the brush is covered in, in soap and you wave it over the body and you then bring it down onto the body and you're kind of massaging and exfoliating. And I have done that, you know, since, let's say, 1969. Now, whether or not, because at least once a week, and now it certainly is once a week, I would go to the steam baths and therefore kind of you're sweating, you're getting rid of the toxic, you're drinking a lot of fluid. Whether that has, uh, has, has helped, I don't know. But, you know, I can't think of, of, of anything other because, you know, otherwise, you know, I eat, I don't drink a great deal, but I eat, I don't know whether I eat healthily, yeah, I've exercised. I don't know. Is hmm. is the the short answer to that? My question is: did, what, During the early days, was the medical community interested? Did they test you? Try to figure it out? Oh yeah. I mean, the, I mean, what was really interesting was that that uh, here they were right on it, um, and in the very very early days, one was given MRI scans because they they knew that it was getting to the brain, and so one of the, 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 the things about the, the medication 
was the medication was there to, to help stop, you know, the virus breaching, breaching the blood-brain barrier. So people were aware, um, but because I was so new, you know, and the virus was so new to it, you know, everything was being being thrown at you and you were being offered stuff and you were getting support and what have you. And what was really interesting was that there came a point somewhere round about 1987 and there was this trial called the Concord trial. And the Concord trial was they were going to trial AZT, the use of AZT. And they said, you know, we'd like you to, to join this, <coughs> this trial, the Concord trial. And so um, they explained that you have a cohort and then you cut the cohort in two and one half gets the pill and the other half gets the placebo. Right. So I said to them, so when you're doing that, do you kind of pair us up? So someone who's got like a similar bill to me or metabolism, but I knew that was kind of pushing it a bit, but similar bill to me, we would be paired up and one of us would get the pill and the other the placebo. And they said, oh, no, that's far too complicated. And I just saw red. Mm. And I said, well, now, I said, if you could put a post down the middle of me and you give one half of me the pill, I knew I was being sort of you know, facetious, one <laughs> half of me the pill and the other half the placebo, and we see which side does best. That, I think, is a trial. But if you can't be bothered to, to, to pair us up, I can't be bothered to do your trial. And I didn't do it. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I'm here, because as we all know, or maybe people don't know, AZT was a failed chemotherapy drug, which we didn't know at the time. And chemotherapy drugs work in that they completely clear out your immune system. So they clear out the cancer, but they also clear out all the good cells. So that leaves you open to any opportunistic infection. And later on, they discovered that actually AZT worked for about three months and then it didn't. So, you know, it, it, it basically was a killer. How did you meet Nigel? I was sitting in my flat. I was feeling completely isolated. I didn't know what to do. I would go out because I needed to be around people. So I would go out to, to gay bars because I wanted to be with people. But I knew that I couldn't, you know, meet people because I had this killer virus coursing through my, my, my veins and I did not want to infect anyone. Anyway, I went out and I remember one day picking up a copy of a, of a, a gay news sheet called Capital Gay. And in it, I saw this tiny little advertisement Gays for a nuclear-free future are running a coach on the 1st of April 1983, which is going to join a stand together around Greenham Common, which was the American Air Base and the women's camp, and Burfield and Aldermaston, which were the two uh, British nuclear establishments. And I thought, all right, I'm going to go and join that you know, that's going to be my re-entry into society. I'd attempted suicide in the December of that year. I couldn't do it. I could hear the voice of my mother saying, Jonathan, you clear up your own mess. You don't leave it for others to clear up. And I thought, right. I'm going to leave one hell of a mess. <laughs> so I couldn't do it. So 
that was it. So I remember girding my loins and heading off by tube to go to Marchmont Street, Russell Square and Marchmont Street, where Gay's the Word, which was this gay bookshop was. And I remember coming out of Russell Square tube station and I walked out and I could see the coach, you know, up on Marchmont Street. And I suddenly thought, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> and I was about to turn on my heels and flee back into the tube. And this voice says, hello, my name's Nigel, who are you? <laughs> and I was stopped in my tracks and I turn round and I see this guy who is wearing green Wellington boots. He's got ochre and crimson pantaloons, this crimson feral singlet and this mop of black curly hair. And that was Nigel Young. And I went, oh, Jonathan. And we just walked up to the coach together, had the most amazing day. We were just talking 10 to the dozen. I told him about my diagnosis. I think it just washed over him or he never heard it, but it, it was amazing. We, we spent the whole day together. He was introducing me to his friends and what have you. It, it was fantastic. And the next day I said to him, why don't you come to, to, to me in the East End and come and have tea? The next day he arrives, he comes with a bunch of anemones and with two jam donuts. I mean, he's brought tea. <laughs> and he comes into my flat and he says, you know, you're living isolated in the East End. I'm living in North London. I know of a squat in Brixton. Why don't we move in together? And I just thought, you know, I'm going to be dead in a three months time. Why not? Let's just do it. He knew someone who wanted to sublet my flat. So we did it. <laughs> and we moved into to this squat and we were there for about three months. And the matriarch of, of the squat, she had a boyfriend who was 16 and the boyfriend was dealing drugs and she couldn't bear drugs. And she came across them in her knicker drawer and she challenged him and he said, oh, they're not mine. No, no, I'm looking after them for Nigel. So she threw us out. And Nigel was brilliant. He didn't go, no, they're not mine. Look to you. You know, he just thought she'll find out, you know, that'll be that. <laughs> so he had lived um, in actually in South London in 81 during the, the riots, the, the famous Railton Road riots. He and a friend of his had tickets to go and hear Janet Baker singing Julius Caesar at the, the Coliseum. So they had gone off to the Coliseum to, uh, to hear Janet Baker. The riot erupted. And when they came to come home, it was all blocked off. Eventually, the police let them come back. So they did get home. And I remember I had gone to see a show at the Riverside Studios, which is in Hammersmith. And when one came out onto the balcony in the interval, you could see the sky was lit up from the flames from Brixton. It was it was extraordinary. Absolutely wow. extraordinary. Okay, so I have a question. You mentioned earlier, you said, you know, you moved in with Nigel. You said you have three months. Yeah. Three months goes by, you're still here. 
you could say, yeah. okay, do I have another three months? Three months goes by, you're still here. At what yeah, point did you realize, okay, something's not right here? It actually didn't kind of strike me till I was 60. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. You know, it, it was always, you know, I mean. It loomed I'm, over your head, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, what was always fantastic in those early days was that, you know, every two weeks you would go and see your HIV consultant. So sort of one really was well looked after. And I took no medication up until I think it was about 1989. And my CD4 count had fallen to 200. And that was an AIDS diagnosis. And I completely freaked. And the Middlesex Hospital had closed down. We'd all been moved to a place called Mortimer Market. I, because I had not joined the Concord trial, felt that I was being sidelined. And so I left Mortimer Market and I went to the Chelsea and Westminster to the Cobra. And they were fantastic there in terms of sorting out my, my benefits. But I saw a young doctor who now is a consultant um, and he wanted to put me on the, the pills. And I was so angry still about AZT that I did not want the medication. I didn't care if it was going to save my life. You know, I was doing all right and um, I just didn't. But what was amazing in terms of the British government's response to the sort of uh, the AIDS epidemic in those early years was that they had produced this, what I think was a, a horrendous campaign, but, but actually it worked, called Don't Die of Ignorance. There was the tombstone, John Hurt's voice saying, you know, don't die of ignorance, you know, there is this virus that can affect anybody. And it was interesting that they had already knew that it could affect anybody, even though the press was always going on about it being a gay plague, a gay virus, or what, what have you. But what they did was that they put money into research and development for medication, so research with the pharmaceutical companies, but they also created drop-in centres. There was this wonderful flagship place called the London Lighthouse, which basically had a hospice. So when people were dying, they could die with dignity. And the other thing which is really interesting is that the whole way of nursing care for people living with HIV completely changed the way that people are treated. Now, first of all, it was just in the HIV sector, but that has moved over to the cancer you know, sector. So it's really interesting that, that through HIV, a whole different way of, of nursing and the approach to patient care changed phenomenally. So what led you to join Gays and Lesbians Support the Minors, the grassroots movement to raise money and awareness for striking minors during the early 80s? And before you answer that, full disclosure, I was born in South Wales. My, uh -huh. uncles, my uncles were all uh, minors. They were striking minors. So obviously being, I was a lot younger, obviously, when that right. happened. So as I grew older, I finally learned about it. And then, of course, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the movie a little later on. But it was, it was incredible. And then when I actually, you know, asked my, you know, my uncles, do you remember this? And they were like, oh, yeah. And they said, basically, like, they saved the Welsh community, the, the country as a whole. And I, it's, yeah. it's a remarkable story. It is. I mean, essentially, Nigel was a very politically active person. He'd been a member of, of the Gay Left Collective, which was a sort of 
a socialist collective where they produced a magazine. So he was very, very sort of, you know, involved with the trade unions, with unions, with, with politics. And so it was just the most natural thing in the world. And for me, what was kind of important, I had been working as an actor and I'd been working, um, doing pantomime in Swansea during the first miners' strike. So that was 1982-83, when the miners brought down the Heath government. And this was payback, Thatcher's payback to the miners. That's why she was after them, because they had brought, even though she couldn't stand Ted Heath, they brought down her government and she wasn't having that. So she planned, she absolutely planned for it, because one of the things that, that had happened was that during the first miners' strike, they ran out of coal. So Margaret Thatcher, when she got whatever his name, McGregor, um, running the coal board, she got all the miners working overtime to, you know, make sure that they had got two years of stockpiles of coal so that whatever happened during this strike, they would never run out of coal. So they would never run out of, of electricity. There would not be four day weeks. But anyway, so Nigel was was politically active. We heard about uh, this group being formed. So it just made absolute sense that we join it. And for me, of course, with my diagnosis, it was so important because if I could find displacement activities, things that would keep me busy, not thinking about my death, the virus, what have you, I was in seventh heaven. So it was, it was just, it was fabulous. So having been in Swansea in 81, my mother was born in Swansea. Mm. Her father was a rabbi in Swansea. Her parents had met in Nice and had married. They'd had uh, an older child. And then my mother was born in, uh, in January of 1914. They then emigrated to Canada in the March of that year. So you know, she was born in Swansea, but left and then didn't come back till 1926, which is a, another story. But yes, <laughs> so sort of South Wales and Swansea were really important to me. So the idea of, of being involved with this group and the reason that we went to South Wales was that there was already a connection between the young communists and the mining community. And, you know, the, the mining communities in South Wales are really kind of politically kind of sort of attuned. In 1923, when the, the, the mines were privately owned, there was a miners strike and the mine owners brought in Galician miners to break the strike. When the Galician miners learned that they'd been brought in to break the strike, they joined the strike. So there is a row of cottages in Dulais, which is called Spaniards Cottages, and that's where they lived. In 1948, when Mao Zedong um, ended the Long March, the miners of South Wales sent a telegram congratulating him. So kind of, you know, they're mm -hmm. right up there. So because of, of this group, there were connections. So this is where we offered. And what was really interesting was that, that 
you know, it's all snail mail because there still isn't computers, mobile phones or what's his name. So a letter was written to the miners and Sean James, who later became an MP, she said what had happened was that we received this letter and there were all these bum boy jokes and what have you sort of, you know, and they stopped and they thought, what on earth are we doing? And so it was decided that they would accept our money and anybody that wasn't happy with that, then they should make themselves scarce because they would know when we were coming down. So when we arrived, we had no idea. We were welcomed with open arms. And of course, you know, those that weren't happy were kind of, you know, <laughs> right. weren't there. So I've asked this question before to uh, some other guests who had met him, but I'd love to get your take. What do you remember about Mark Ashton? Oh, Mark, he was a kind of, he was a far brand. He was incredibly charismatic. I mean, really charismatic. But, you know, he was, he had a, this, this kind of understanding about politics in a way that, that beyond his years. But yeah, I mean, just extraordinary. In many ways, you know, Mark and I were not close because Nigel and I were the oldest. Right. You know, because they're all in their 20s. You know, we're in our 30s. So we're kind of the gerontophiles <laughs> of, uh, of LGSM. But no, he was he was amazing. And and what is wonderful is is the way that he's being recognized. So there is a park in Paris, which is named after him. It's Jardin Le um, Hotel oh, La Maison de Marc Ashton. Mm. I mean, wow. Yeah. And then there's a, a blue pack um on Gaze the Word, basically because all the other gay bars that, that we were associated with have all been pulled down or no longer a gay. So right. that's the place for the blue badge. But an extraordinary, extraordinary man. So like I said, we're going to mention the film in just a little bit, but there is one thing I do want to ask you because I saw it in the film and I, I didn't know if it was real. I had to Google it and it was real. What do you yeah. remember from the concert, Pits and Perverts? Oh, the concert was fantastic. You know, I mean, what was 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 fabulous there is if you if you want to watch there is this 27 minute documentary called all out dancing in Dulies. and this was this 27 minute documentary which was made by a group of members of lgsm basically for the community in south wales as a memento as a reminder and in it you will see that the compare for or one of the compares for um, Pits and Perverts was Nigel, was my partner. And he was wearing an earring with a long feather. And if you go back to the film, you'll see that Mark is wearing an earring with <laughs> a long feather. Awesome. So there are all those little connections. Okay, Devon Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here. But we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview with Jonathan Blake. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long, deep breaths. You know, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Give a couple friends of my show your attention, and we will be right back. The Plum Forest Podcast. 
The Plum Forest Podcast is a great place to listen to weird, off-the-wall stories that are based off of classical Chinese short stories. But don't worry, they're in English. Now these stories get super weird and take turns quicker than you can say the name of the show. Be sure to check us out on literally any app that hosts podcasts or even at our website at www.plumforestpodcast.com. And get ready for season two. It's coming soon. Take care and stay safe, everyone. Duval Nation, Derek and Mindy Duval here to talk about Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. The Derek Duval Show and Derek and Mindy's Fun with Movies is proud to be sponsored by the team at Jerky Pro. As a veteran, I am always the first to support veteran-owned businesses. Setting up shop in 1987 and founded by military and paramilitary veterans, they have set the bar for how beef jerky is processed, flavored, packaged, and sold. With strict quality control standards, Jerky Pro offers many flavors that are sure to please any beef jerky connoisseur. From the standard original flavor to honey glazed, peppered, teriyaki, sweet barbecue, or if you're brave enough, the fierce red hot, there are many flavors guaranteed to entice your palate. Offered in various sized packaging, use promo code DUBALL37, all in capital letters, at checkout to receive a 5% discount. Remember, folks, if your beef jerky is not making your mouth water, then it's not Jerky Pro Beef Jerky. Jerky Pro, the standard in premium beef jerky products. I want to be as high as these billionaires in space. Sell out the sky like these billionaires in space. Hi, this is Dominic Canarella. I'm Eric McCoy. And I'm Max Meislish. We are Them Fantasies. Right now, you're listening to our brand new single, Billionaires. Billionaires is about how absurd it is that the mega-rich are going to space as if there's nothing left for them here on Earth. Nowhere else to go but up, right? You can listen to Billionaires now on all streaming platforms and be sure to check out our brand new music video on our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere on social media at Them underscore Fantasies. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. 
Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 102 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with LGBTQ legend Jonathan Blake. Today now, anti-retroviral drugs along with PrEP, light years away from the early 80s. Oh. And, now we, and now you have U equals U you know, undetectable yep. equals untransmittable. How close do you personally think we are to finally ending the AIDS epidemic? I, you know, the difficulty around that is that, yes, there is the medication, but the cost of the medication is prohibitive for, for people living in Africa, you know, for people, you know- In America. In America. You know, so there's, you know, one could, you know, stop it. You know, there is every possibility that certainly in, in this country, there is a want and a wish to there being no new transmissions of HIV by 2030. But that also requires a great deal of publicity, publicity by governments, you know, to encourage people to test. You know, right. I don't know whether you saw whether whether um, It's a Sin got to the States. No, I have not. I, I think it did. But but anyway, there was a there was this um, series called It's a Sin, uh, which was made by the man who wrote um, Doctor Who, and now the name completely mm. escapes me. It'll come back to me anyway. Which was about those early years for, of of HIV, and from that, testing went up by four hundred percent. I mean, suddenly people were suddenly aware that there had been another uh, pandemic before COVID, and people tested. And that really is what needs to happen: is that people have got to learn and be encouraged to go and test because once you know your status particularly because there is the medication then you can deal with it also what needs to happen is they need to make sure that that anybody who requires prep so sex workers that they should be able to get prep easily the important thing that people must realize is that prep will stop you getting HIV. It ain't going to stop you getting syphilis or gonorrhea or right. So, you know, people still have to take precautions and be sensible. But, you know, it does exist. There is this medication, you know, but people need to be aware of it and need to, to use it. The problem we're having in America right now, and I was going to bring this up later, but I'll tell, I just might as well bring it up now, is yeah. that 
we are having a lot of problems now. They're reversing a lot of the sex education. Yeah. And now, partly with the drugs that we have now, there's been a lot of rise in new cases, especially in the gay community, young kids, yeah. 18, between 22, 23, yeah. that are getting it because they're like, oh, I'll just take a pill the rest of my life. You know, I, I don't really care. Yeah. And that's a problem that we're having over here. And I, it's not right. Well, it's not. But, you know, I think people have no idea. And I, in a way, you know, as a, as a youth, you don't. You think you're invincible on the one hand. And then you're told, yeah, but there's medication that, you know, you can take. But that's okay if you can afford it. Right. You know? And, you know, people don't think about the cost implications and all of that. And then, of course, they they use this. I don't know whether it happens in the States, but over here they're using, well, you know, HIV, you know, it's it's manageable like diabetes. Well, actually, diabetes is far more difficult to manage than HIV because diabetes is really complicated. If you have diabetes one, diabetes two is different. So, you know, it, it's about people being given the information. And I think that, that what you're saying is that that with all this kind of anti sort of uh, queer LBGT, you know, things that is going on sex education they are not being told about homosexuality they're not being told about sort of condoms they're not being talked about sort of you know what medications there are if you get this disease you can take that you know because that's what needs to happen i mean we had it in this country when thatcher's government brought in something called section 28 where local governments were not allowed to talk about homosexuality. You could only talk about heterosexual couples marrying, you know, and we were all sidelined. And eventually it got it got quashed, but it actually took until something like 2003, the Labour government in 2003. So it wasn't kind of right up there on their sort of their list right at the start. So I had Peter Tatchell on the show a few weeks ago. Amazing. How important has he been to the gay community, in your opinion? Oh, I think that, that, that he's been extraordinary. You know, I mean, he's been vilified and sort of, you know, there are people that he, he can be very polarizing. But he is out there and he is vocal. And I think sort of, you know, respect to him because, you know, he puts his head above the parapet. You know, there was a, a period when it was quite difficult when he was running to uh, to to be a Labour candidate and he wasn't as out as he had been, you know, or he is now. Uh, and that was difficult. But hey ho, you know, but yeah. no, I think that, that that he's a really, really, really important uh, person. And and he is out and he makes a noise and he won't be silenced. And I think that's really important. And I think that that it is really important. You know, the reason that, that I'm really happy um, to talk about, you know, my HIV is because the more that it is talked about, then the less that, that the fear is there and you start to hopefully begin to break down the stigma. And I spoke to him for an hour and a half. He was just an absolutely incredible guest definitely belongs on my Mount Rushmore of, of great guests I've had. So brilliant. Good. Yeah. So in 2014, 
the film Pride is released. Yeah. You're portrayed by Dominic West. Yes. How involved were you during the making of this film? And what did you think of his performance? Oh, I thought he was great. I mean, I think he's an amazing actor. Um, basically not. I mean, it was really interesting. Stephen Beresford, who, who wrote the story, um, the screenplay, when Stephen Beresford was at drama school at, at RADA in 1993, I think it was, John Major was just closing the remainder of the pits that, that Thatcher hadn't closed. And he was up in arms about it. He had a, an older partner who said, well, let me tell you a story. And he told him the story of lesbian and gay men sport minors. And he couldn't believe it. He thought it was far too far-fetched. It just, it couldn't be. And anyway, he felt that if he sort of agreed with him, he'd lose the argument. He wasn't about to do that and he stormed out. But it stayed with him. And when computers then sort of came about and, and what have you, he thought, oh, I'm going to check into this. And he typed in lesbian and gay men support the minors and up popped this 27 minute documentary all out dancing into eyes. And the whole story was there. And he thought, wow. So he thought, I need to find someone who's named. And he thought, well, if I hit on Mike Jackson, I'm going to get billions of hits, Michael Jackson, blah, blah, blah. But there was this name, Reggie Blenner Hassett. So he went to Facebook and he saw there was a Reggie Blenner Hassett. So he got in touch with him and he said, uh, were you a member of Lesbian and Gay Men Sport the Minors? And Reggie was. So Reggie arranged to meet him and vetted him. And he felt that Stephen understood the politics and what have you. So he then passed him to Mike Jackson and Mike Jackson did the same thing. And again, felt that, that he understood. So Mike gave him the names of all the existing members of lesbian, gay men, sport minors and the people in South Wales. And Stephen came round and he interviewed us. And I remember him being here for about four hours with Nigel and I. And then he, he went off and that was that. And one just thought, oh, yeah, ha, 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 what is going to happen with this? And about, I suppose, 15 months later, um, I get this telephone call. Um, my name's Stephen Beresford. I don't know if you remember me, but I came and interviewed. Oh, yes, I said. Well, he said, I, I need to come and speak with you. So we arranged to meet and he arrived. I ushered him in. And he got this this bunch of uh, roses, cabbages and roses. And I said, oh, are you going to a wedding? No, no, he said, they're for you. And gave them a hand. He said, the um, director and the actor who is playing you would like to meet you. Is that possible? So I said, well, when were you thinking? How about tomorrow tea time? <laughs> I thought there's just time to make a lemon drizzle cake. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so the day arrives, he arrives with this bunch of flowers. You go into a wedding? No, 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 they're for you. So I said, well, where are the others? Oh, there's a costume fitting. They'll be along later. So he comes in. I said, you can have tea, but no cake till they arrive. <laughs> Doorbell goes. I go to get the door. This man thrusts his hand out, introduced himself as Matthew Warkus. And over his shoulder, I can see McNulty from The Wire. And that was the point that I knew it was Dominic Best. <laughs> so 
Matthew came in and we're sitting around and he just took over and he basically wanted Nigel and I to tell us sort of, you know, the story, how we met, you know, what our relationship was with the, the, the miners and just the whole thing. And after about an hour, Stephen said, Jonathan, why don't you take Dominic out and show him your garden? Because where I live is we live in a, a, a gay and lesbian community. So there were five houses on one street and three houses on the other, and they have gardens that abut one another. So when they were squatted, the, the walls were all knocked down to make sort of paving so you could move from one to the other. So there's this big communal garden. And when we moved back in in 1985, when all the houses had been refurbished, nobody was interested in, in making a garden. So I just created this fantasy garden. And kind of it's just evolved. I mean, it's got a bit crazy, but it's still there. So it is this amazing environment. So we just went out. And what I didn't know was that... that Dominic's partner, his wife, um, is a, a, a garden designer. So yeah, so there was, you know, was a connection. But he's a real, a genuinely, really lovely, lovely man. Awesome. How much of the film did they get right, and how much was Hollywood fiction? Um, for the most part, I would say a good seventy percent was right. And what was interesting was that that, as I said, that that we didn't know about the fact that there had been you know groups of people who were said if they weren't happy with uh, with our money being taken that when we came down we should keep away so actually we were never aware that there was any kind of disharmony so but he used that for for you know dramatic purposes mm -hmm. um and also the character of Joe is completely fiction because what Stephen wanted was that he wanted to have somebody, you know, who was, well, getting, well, because when the law changed in 1967, the law was changed. So it was partially decriminalized. So the law allowed for um, consenting adult males over the age of 21 to be in a relationship. But that meant that if I shared a flat with three people and I dragged a person back, we were breaking the law because that other person, it was no longer in private because there were other people in the flat. And in the sort of the early days, there were far more prosecutions than there had been previously which was one of those extraordinary sort of things that that that, that happened mm. so yeah you know so Stephen wanted that so you know eventually joe becomes legal because he hits 21 and he's given right the badge there were things that that, that were not correct in terms of originally there was something like about 30 of us that went down there there were two Hackney Community Transports and one clapped up old Volkswagen. But because of, you know, you couldn't have that many people <laughs> in terms of, uh, of costs. So, you know, there were fewer people 
involved in terms of numbers but essentially yeah and and it was true that that the miners came up um for gay pride 1985 and they brought their brass band and it was actually because of the brass band that they said there are too many of you you'll have to lead so we did actually get to lead the parade that is true well, there weren't quite as many coaches. <laughs> <laughs> I told some people that you were going to come on the show, and some of them have actually seen probably big fans of the film. Yeah. And they wanted me to ask you one question. And I'm pretty sure you've probably gotten this question before. Okay. Did you go out there in real life dancing with the Welsh women in the in the club? There is a photograph, and I wish that I had got it. There is a photograph of me which is clapping my hands in glee, dancing in the, uh, the welfare. From that one photograph came Dominic West's four and a half minute dance. <laughs> it's, but, it's, a it's a fun moment in the film. It is a fun moment in the film. So I want to ask you, what's next for you? As a, have you thought about writing a book? Oh, people keep asking me about you know, I should write a book, I should write it. I'm, I'm not a, a, a book writer. I think that I would need to find a ghost writer right. to, to write a book because, I mean, I've had the, the most extraordinary life. I mean, and no I don't know about where, it. where it came from, why I've just been very, very fortunate. You know, I had wonderful years in terms of, you know, being a performer or attempting to be a performer then, you know, meeting Nigel completely changed my life. I mean, I don't believe that I would be here had I not met him. I can't imagine what my life would have been like if there would have been anything. I, I just, you know, he gave me a life and he was an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, extraordinary sort of uh, man. Mm. So, and it's difficult. It's It's really kind of... You know, I, I can't I can't explain what it's like suddenly after almost 39 years to be on your own and to have to clear his flat because we, we lived in the same house, but we each had our own flats, which is probably why we survived. When things got difficult, you could say, fuck off and slam the door closed. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, sort of. And, and one just is not uh, prepared. I think it's the kind of, it's solitude that I'm not used to. I mean, I like my own company, but when you're always used to the fact that there is another energy that's there. And of course, you know, he had a stroke in 2013. So, you know, once he'd had his stroke, then basically I became a carer. And, you know, that's that's quite demanding. So suddenly not to have, there's all this kind of time. Right. But it, it is strange. But at the same time, you know, there is this extraordinary, the Bishopsgate Institute, which has this amazing or has these amazing archives and it was actually set up by, by the Church of England. The Church of England had got so much money and they didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so they actually um, put money aside 
to create archives so you know people could leave their stories behind right and that has grown and you know they've got like the metropolitan police archive there and thing but they have this huge lesbian and gay transgender and bisexual archive there and they they basically got in touch with me and said we would like nigel's archive and so they have got 46 boxes which is basically his life and they're going through it and basically they will catalog it all and it'll then be online so people can access that's incredible i've never heard of something like that yeah no 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 i mean that's... i've only recently sort of heard about it because i knew that there were a couple of archives i i knew that there was um something called the hall carpenter archive which was held at the uh, the london school of economics and Nigel went to the London School of Economics. So I thought, oh, well, I'll give some of his um, stuff to the Hall Carpenter Archive. And another friend of, of his uh, and of mine, uh, who'd known him for 50 years, um, Peter Bradley said, well, if I was an archivist, I would really be angry having to go to two different places. Hmm. So I thought, all right, I'll just give it to Bishopsgate. And if there are any kind of duplications, then they can give me back those and I can lodge them with the Hall Carpenter. So I always like to ask one last fun question, and then we'll get into the, the closing phase of this. Yeah. Um, what sort of music or shows are you currently into right now? Oh, wow. You know, I have to say that I love opera. Ah, nice. Um, so yeah you know um, and i'm actually about to go off to germany because they have this big wagner festival in bayreuth and wagner built this i mean here i am a nice jewish boy talking about wagner <laughs> but yeah that's Great. contradiction to the term yeah <laughs> anyway um he built this this uh, this theater for this this festival and so sort of every year one applies for tickets and initially you know it takes you about sort of 10 years before you get your first lot of tickets we got tickets in 2019 for 2020 but of course it was cancelled because of covid so you could either have your money back donate the money to the festival or it could be lodged there as a as a credit so we left it there and sure enough this year we got the tickets so we're going so so i'm i'm going for my wagner fix in awesome. in august there's awesome. there's four of us that's going that's that's you know it's funny i even know who wagner was until i went to college Right. And that's that's I know it sounds like pleading ignorance on my part, but I didn't realize that most of the modern music that you hear in films or such it's all are, based it's from Wagner. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. It, it, it is extraordinary, absolutely mm. extraordinary, but very very powerful. And uh, so yeah, so for the most part, but but that, but then sort of I I also have a really really sort of um, soft spot for Janice Ian. 
I am my interviews with my favorite question, and the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? Oh, God, I tell you what I would like to say is stop fucking fighting. I mean, what is it that one person wants to take over another person's country? It is crazy. You know, I do not understand why we cannot just simply get on and and live in harmony but it doesn't seem to happen there is something kind of in the sort of the human psyche that simply there's always got to be a top dog or top bitch right. um it's crazy i i simply don't understand it because there is enough pain in the world you know isn't it about time that we just grew up and started to to kind of live together because there is only one world, there is only one planet. We haven't got the option of going anywhere else. You know, maybe the likes of, of Elon Musk or what's his name might, but you know, for most of us, we're here. Right. So why not just make the best of it and have right. fun? So Jonathan, I want to say to you, uh, I know it was a it, putting this together was a was a trek, but this has been an absolute delight and a pleasure for me to talk to you thank you you're welcome thank you. and seriously best of wishes to you and all, all my best seriously all my best fabulous and just like that devon nation we come to the end of episode 102 i want to thank jonathan for taking the time to come on the show it took a lot of stars to align to make this happen and i also want to thank steve keeble and Ben Lord from the documentary After 82 and The Stars Episode 22 for making the introduction to Jonathan possible. Honestly, it's been great to stay in touch with Jonathan since we recorded the episode, and he is living an incredible life right now traveling the world. Well, if you thought this episode was incredible, we will be back next week with another interview from another extraordinary person. We have countless interviews we've recorded in the last three months, and I cannot wait for you to hear them. By the time this release, the World Cup will be in full swing. Let's just say I joined a large group of people who believe Qatar should never have been given a World Cup to begin with, and that lays at the feet of FIFA. However, if there is a positive, I am looking forward to the first game, Wales versus the United States, the two countries where I am a citizen of battling each other on the pitch. Come Ryan Bath and I cannot wait to see Wales defeat the United States. As we finish production on this episode today, I woke up this morning to learn of the horrific attack on the LGBTQ community in Colorado Springs. Not too many details at the time of finishing this post-production, but it goes without saying that gun violence needs to be curbed drastically in the United States, and any hateful attack against the LGBTQ community is hateful and worthy of the most severe punishment possible. We stand with the gay community, and I hope that those injured will make a speedy recovery. Okay, a few housekeeping items before we close out today. Have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have a carefully curated collection of t-shirts put together by myself and Mrs. Duval. On November 22nd, 2022 to November 30th, 2022, you can get up to 40% off on a number of quality items. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com. Look on the banner at the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic. And we want to thank TeePublic for being such great partners. On behalf of the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, take the advice that Jonathan was giving out today. 
If you are living the single life and you are sexually active, be it gay or straight, always know your HIV status. Together, we can end this 40-year epidemic. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duvall Show.